the book of Philippians. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, we have some Bibles at the back. Uh, if you want to follow along in those Bibles or look on with your neighbor, we will have it on the screen as well. We are in a series in Philippians entitled, Worthy of the Gospel. It's a phrase in Philippians, and it's a phrase that communicates the idea that the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, so changes our lives, so impacts us with the free gift of forgiveness, with the victory of Christ over sin and death and his resurrection, and then new life in him. It, it so impacts us that it, it changes our lives. We live a life worthy of the gospel. It doesn't mean we earn the gospel in any way. There's no way any of us could do anything to earn what Christ did. But there is a life that flows from the gospel that's an appropriate response to the gospel. And so this wonderful letter is a letter written by Paul to this church in Philippi, his dear friends, instructing them about living worthy of the gospel, living in light of the gospel. And in particular, he is addressing uh, uh, their struggles with unity or disunity at, at some level. We don't know to what level. It's not too serious. So this letter is, a, is help for them in that situation, but also an excellent reminder and a celebration of their friendship, their partnership in the gospel. So there's many lessons in the book of Philippians for us. For certainly, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to understand how the gospel affects our lives, how we live worthy of the gospel. We need power to overcome all the different things that would push us to disunity, to, to dysfunction in relationships. The gospel comes in to rescue us. So we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The title of the message is Selfish Part 2. Last week we looked at Philippians 2, 1 to 4. This all actually all goes together. It all addresses very specifically this trend we have, sadly, this persistent trend we have to live selfishly. And in these verses is the power and the pattern to live an unselfish life. So let's read. Let's read God's Word. Let's pray first and then let God speak to us through His Word. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the powerful gospel, this gospel that is your power for the, for the rescue, the salvation of all who believe, that this gospel rescues us from our sin, the penalty of our sin, which is the eternal separation from you, present and eternal separation from you. It also rescues us from the power of sin in our lives and the presence of sin. Lord, there, the gospel rescues us from sin and changes our lives to live a new life in you. We thank you, Lord. And we thank you that this gospel we know through your word. Your word is living and active and you speak to us through it and you change us through your word. So come, Holy Spirit. Be with us. Help me, Lord. I, I need your help desperately. Lord, I, I cannot, even doing my best, do justice to your word. But I thank you that you are mighty and you are able. So come now and speak to us through your word. Change our lives. Lead us in this new life in the gospel, we pray. And we thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's word, Philippians chapter 2. Mike and Diane were so in love. You could tell by the way that he held her hand and looked at her and the way that she looked at him, even when they were around others. He would bring her flowers every Friday, a different bouquet each week. She would make him gourmet lunches and leave love notes in his lunchbox. He would read her poetry. She would watch sports with him and know the players and their stats. He would plan surprise weekend getaways. She would find exotic bargain vacations. They would have friends over for game nights and dessert and laugh and draw all their friends into their love. They dreamed of their life together and made all sorts of plans about what they would do and where they would live and how many kids they'd have and, and how they would grow old together. But before they reached their seventh year of marriage, they were divorced for irreconcilable differences. He stopped bringing flowers and instead brought home a bad attitude from his difficult workplace. She no longer made gourmet meals but gave him a piece of her mind for leaving dirty dishes and dirty clothes around. He would come home and surf the web. She would watch her sitcoms. They would hardly make eye contact in the presence of others. Their friends couldn't endure their constant bickering. They had forgotten all their dreams. Dashed against the cold, hard reality of two separate lives merely coexisting under one roof. Selfishness had displaced love and destroyed something truly beautiful. I could repeat this story. I could change the characters. I could change the specifics. I could tell you a similar story about married couples. I could tell you about best friends. I could tell you about relationships in the workplace, sports teams, or neighbors. Where love was displaced by selfishness. And yes, I could tell you about churches. Love lost because of selfishness. Something truly beautiful destroyed through selfishness. Have you seen this? 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you a casualty of a story like this? Well, I have good news for you. There is a cure. There is a cure. There is a rescue that God has gone on. And Paul, the author of this letter, as he writes the Philippians, understands their need, the need of the Philippians to be rescued, the need of the Philippians to find the cure from the ugliness and the destructive power of selfishness that destroys something truly beautiful, a a church that loves one another and is unified. There is a cure here, and last week we looked at the cure. We looked at we looked at the, the truth that the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of the gospel give us the power to live unselfishly. The blessings of the gospel, the, the life we have in Christ, being forgiven for our sins, being included with him and having, having life in him and all the, all the inheritance that he has, eternal life, peace with God, the comfort of his presence. We have God's love and mercy. We have, we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit All these things we have in the gospel. Comfort of God's love. And these blessings of the gospel and and the power of the new life of Christ in us changing our perspective. This power of the gospel gives us this ability to live unselfishly, to put away self-seeking, to put away making ourselves and our desires first as we stand secure, forgiven, loved in Christ. We have no reason to be bickering and bartering to be first. We learn about the power. And this week, in this section of Scripture, we learn about the pattern of the gospel. The gospel gives us a pattern of an unselfish life. So both the power and the pattern are what these uh, verses are about, what this section is about. The power and the pattern to live an unselfish life. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to go through we're going to go through these verses. We're going to observe the pattern of the gospel. These verses are about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ. The gospel is the good news about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. So we're just going to walk through, and we're going to study this pattern, and we're going to make observations from this pattern. We're going to find ourselves, I trust, freshly informed, and by God's Spirit, freshly inspired to live in the truth of the gospel, its power and its pattern, to live unselfishly. So let's begin to go through here. Paul says in the beginning, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is calling us to have this mindset. If you were here last week, do you remember we talked about this new mindset that we're to have one mind? Uh, We are to have to be one-minded, one-souled together, one-hearted. We're to have one mind. What is that mind? The mind is the mind of Christ. So now this second section we're looking at, verses 5 through 11, are going to describe to us what is this mind of Christ. This mind of Christ that is something that we have in us by grace as we encounter him in the gospel. The Spirit of God comes and lives in us and in the truth of God and gives us this power to have this new mindset. It is not simply intellectually attaining to this mindset. It is an experience, but there is truth around it. So Paul is going to go through the truth behind that mindset. And I trust for us, we will be touched as the Spirit stirs us and, and bolsters us in this mindset that we have in Christ. So first... 
Paul, in speaking of this mindset, he says of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul starts out with Jesus, and Jesus is in the form of God. This description that we're going to go through actually is like a divine roller coaster. It starts out with glory. It starts out talking about Jesus and his glory, and we'll we'll get into that. And then it talks about Jesus and the choices he made to humble himself to serve, and that's like being at the top of the roller coaster and coming down. And and this roller coaster is going to bottom out at at a place of of ultimate humiliation. The the roller coaster, this divine roller coaster is actually greater than any roller coaster you could ever imagine because it goes from infinite heights of glory to infinite depths of shame and humiliation. There's no roller coaster like it. It starts up here, the glory of God, goes down and bottoms out at infinite, infinite shame and humiliation and then rises up again to infinite glory. So we're going to take a ride this morning through God's Word in this divine roller coaster. It starts off saying of Christ, He was in the form of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus kind of looked like God somehow, merely, that He, he just happened to resemble God. He, for some uncanny reason, it, they were separated at birth, and you know, Jesus just looks like God. That's not what it's talking about. It means that Jesus Himself is essentially, and He is, essentially, apparently, and fully God. He is God in every way. That's what it means when it says the form of God. He is God in every every way. We have other scriptures that speak similarly in Hebrews chapter 1. I think we have this to project. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. From him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Why? Because he is God. He is fully God. He is in the form of God. There is no diminishment in Jesus. Jesus is not God Jr. Jesus is not the almost God. He is God. He is fully God in who he is, in his essence, in, in his reality. He is fully God. And, and this is a, a wild thing to think about. There's just like, what does that mean to be God? I, and I can't tell you that I can answer that actually, easily at least. What is it to be God? Well, it means to be the creator of all things. It means to be the one who, who made everything, who called everything into existence. But it means more than that because it means that he existed before there was any existence. He is the eternal self-existent one. He is the, he is the ultimate reality. Everything flows from him. Everything exists through him. And ultimately, ultimately, everything is to him. He is the originator and the endpoint of all things. He, he is God over all. He is the, the self-existent one, the ultimate cause, the ultimate judge, the ultimate authority, the ultimate reality. That's why his name, when, when Moses asked, what should we call you? He said, I am. I am the ultimate reality. And he is infinite in his glory and in his power in his perfections, in his holiness. There's no shadow in God. No, not a bit. There's no darkness in him at all. It's only perfect, complete, blazing white holiness and goodness in all of who he is. There's there's no weakness in God. There's no lack in God. 
God is powerful and able to do anything he pleases to do. That's God. Infinite power, infinite glory, infinite wisdom, infinite love. He's infinite in every way. So when it says Jesus was in the form of God, that's what it means. He is God in his infinite glory. We need to get that. We need to understand that. If we are to understand the rest of what's here, if we are to understand the gospel, if we are to be changed in the power of the gospel, we must get that Jesus is God, and God is infinite and glorious beyond our comprehension. That's who he is. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's in the form of God because he is God. He is in his essence. He is in his appearance in every way. But we know the verse doesn't stop there. That would be great just to say that. That would be wonderful. That would be sufficient just to glory that Jesus is in the form of God. But the verse doesn't stop there. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The wording's a little bit... uh, Awkward for modern English, maybe. We don't talk about, you know, I, I did not count this to be a thing to be grasped. You know, I, we don't use that phrase. Um, I, you know, if you get a promotion at work, you don't humbly say, well, I did not count this a thing to be grasped. You just don't say that. You maybe say, I don't deserve this or something like that, but, but, uh, but you wouldn't use this wording. But, but it, this is a fairly close interpretation or, uh, of the original language. And so we need to say, well, what does it mean? What is it talking about? What does it mean he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Well, it means that he did not consider that being equal with God was something he would hold on to. He didn't say that this equality with God, this fullness and all the rights and prerogatives of God, all the power of God is something I'm going to hold on to for myself. He did not look at his rights. He did not look at his rights as God as a thing to be held on to. He didn't live in reference to what he had coming to him. Now, he had no reason, though, not to do that. He had every right to insist upon his rights as God. What are, what are God's rights as God? He deserves all of our worship. He deserves all of our worship, all of our love, all of our admiration, all of our enjoyment, every single microsecond of our existence because everything has come from him. He is good. He's perfect. Everything is for him. All the goodness that we see out there, all the glory that we, that we see, all the, the blessings that we have come from God. They're his. They're not ours. They're given to us by a gracious God that we might live in him and for him to love him more than the things themselves. And his rights, Jesus' rights as God, are to have the right of eternal, perfect worship of his creation. That's you and me. He has every right. He has every right to, to get all, to have our worship in every way. So when it says, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, Jesus had a right to grasp it. This isn't like a mom with her kids trying to get her kids to share a toy. You know, Junior, you've had that toy long enough. Stop grasping it. Give it away. That's not at all all the situation. Jesus had every right to have all the prerogatives and rights as God. And matter of fact, that's the right thing. 
the position, the power, the rights of God. But this is not how he approached his relationship with his heavenly father and his earthly brothers and sisters. He did not come to the relationship saying, I have a right to be worshipped. I am God. You should know better. You ought to do this. That's not how he approached his relationship with his brothers and sisters. It's not how he approached his relationship with God. He didn't say, God the Father, I am God the Son. I have every right to have everything that you have. Now. I want it now. That's not how he did it. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me tell you that when I deal with in pastoral counseling with people in conflict, often they come into my office grasping something. And the thing that they're grasping is people say, I, I, I just want to be loved by my husband. Or I just want my wife to give me some respect. Or I just want my kids to be mildly obedient. Or I just want my mom and dad to stop treating me like a baby. I'm almost an adult. And there's conflict around that because they're grasping their right. Jesus didn't grasp his rights. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not go into the relationship saying, this is mine, I'm going to get what's mine. It says instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing, is what it says in our ESV. That Literally, it's he emptied himself. It's a wild idea. It's actually hard to understand. He made himself nothing. How? How? How does that work? How does God empty himself? And, and theologians have actually debated what this thing means. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Is, is this saying that somehow he, he gave away his omniscience and his omnipotence? He gave away his infinite power? He gave, he gave these things away and became some sort of diminished form of God or, or, or what? Or he just kind of kept them on the shelf and didn't access them? What, what's, what, what does this mean that he made himself nothing, that he emptied himself? Well, what did he empty himself of? What, what went on? And Well, those are all wild things to think about, but if we look at the context here, the context here is Paul is talking about living unselfishly. He's talking about this example of Christ in the gospel. And so this emptying of himself must relate to that. Certainly we can talk about those other aspects of what it, what it meant. Did he give up any sort of divine privileges or, or, I mean, qualities. I, I don't think he did give up those qualities. He had to continue to be God. We can have that debate on the side. I don't think that's what this is getting at. The thing that he gave up, what Jesus gave up, what he emptied himself of, what he did in making himself nothing, is he gave up his divine privilege to be worshipped and served by all. He gave up his divine privilege to receive the right worship from his creation. He gave up the right for those that should be slaves and servants of him to be a slave and servant to them. That's what he did in emptying himself. He gave up that right. He let go of it. 
and he took on the form of a servant. The word actually means slave, and often because of our cultural history, it's not used because in our culture it connotes other aspects that are not in line with ancient slavery, but the word that connotes other aspects that are not in line with ancient slavery, but the word is a slave. That's the word. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. This is God. This is the infinite, glorious, holy one. This is the one who made all things, has brought and through whom all blessings come. This is the one who deserves our, our passionate persistent, faithful, joyful worship every minute, every second of our existence, and yet he comes and he's a slave, being born in the likeness of a man. He comes and humbles himself as a slave, as a man. A little bit. Just think if we had somebody like our president or somebody come just show up at our door, just as a homeless person, saying, can I come and clean your toilets? Would that be okay? If I would come and clean your toilets, we would be, no, no, it just doesn't make sense. This is God, the Holy One, the ultimately most glorious one, humbling himself and becoming a slave to serve others. But he did more than just clean toilets. He did more than just hold the office of a slave. It says, and being found in human form, so now he comes, he takes on the form of a man in all of our limitations, in all the human weaknesses. He's without sin. There's no sin, but there, is, there are limitations. There are weaknesses just in being human. And he takes on this humble form. And we know the story, it's as a baby. He's born as a baby in a manger. A manger, I mean, that's a dirty place, a manger. It's where cows and donkeys live, and that's, that's where his birthplace is, to obscure unknown parents. Probably one of the least prestigious births in history, perhaps. He's born that way as a baby, a helpless babe. He comes and he, he lives a poor life. He serves. He, he comes as a humble man. And it says, being found in human form now, he's become, he's a man, he's fully man, he's fully God. It says he humbled himself. So the roller coaster comes down from the top, and it's going down, and he's being, he's a slave, he's, he's, a, he's a human, but it goes down further. It says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So his humility, his humiliation is to the point of death. That's more than just being a servant. It's, it's more than, than, than just lowering himself a little thing. It's one thing to be humble to the point of letting others be more prominent than you. That's humility. To, to relate to others and allow them to be more prominent than you. In other words, to give them attention. We talked last week about the parades, right? The parades are things we're interested in. And, and it's, it's humble to be able to start saying, well, let's consider someone else's parade of interest. Let's... let's Focus on that, and that's a good thing. Or even better, let's just forget my parade, and we're going to focus on this one. That, that's, that's humble. Jesus did that. He became a servant. He became a man to consider others, but he went beyond that. He humbled himself to the point of death. He was not merely considering other interests alongside his interests. He annihilated his interests for the sake of others. He, he, he annihilated his interests. He was destroyed for the sake of others. 
There was no interest. When you die, there's no interest. He's given his own interest up. He's given his own life up. He humbled himself to that point. But there's more. It wasn't just death. That's amazing to humble yourself to the point where you, where you die for others, to, to, to humble yourself to the point where you, where you die. But it wasn't just any death. It was death on a cross. Death on a cross. And, and we hear that, and, and sadly, because of our culture's familiarity with the word cross, we don't get it. We wear jewelry that has crosses. Nothing wrong with that. We have crosses in our churches and on top of our churches, and that's appropriate, but, but that's not how it would have functioned in that day. The cross was a horrific symbol. The cross was something that represented uh, the ultimate death, the ultimate shame, the ultimate cursing. To be hung on a cross was to be considered to be entirely and completely accursed by God. Accursed by God. It was the ultimate shame to die on a cross. You could not get lower than a death on a cross. There was no lower point. It was shameful. You were counted accursed by God. That guy is hell-bound forever. That's the thought with the cross. He deserved it. Let him die on the cross. That, that's what went with the cross. This word, it was so, so offensive, so horrific, that the word cross was a, sh- a swear in that day. You did not say cross in polite company. It would be like saying damn or S-H-I-T or other words. You just did not say those words in polite company. The cross was a horror. So when it says he, he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross... That means the lowest of lows. That is the bottom of the roller coaster. Ultimate shame. Infinite glory to ultimate shame. The cross makes the electric chair and the gallows look humane. It is wonder of wonders that Jesus the Lord of glory, was crucified. And to think that this crucifixion, that this death on the cross was necessary because of my sin and your sin. Your sin. That's what drove him there. That's what took him to the point of humiliation. That's why he had to go lower than you can go. Lowest that you could go. We are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who have violated God's holy right commandments. We know they're right. It's in our consciences. We know they're good. To to love God fully and to love others is, is intuitively correct. And obvious, but we have sinned, we have stolen, we have lied, we have cheated, we have schemed, we have dishonored, we have gossiped, we have lived for idols of pleasure and money and status and comfort and power. We've been full of greed and pride and anger. We've thought evil thoughts, we've done evil deeds. We should have been 
the ones on that cross. But the Lord of glory went there for us. Dying the death we deserve. That we might receive the life He deserves. That gift of forgiveness, cleansing of sin is, is available to any and all who would receive it. Who would give up their sin and receive it. And in light of Christ's death, the Lord of glory on the cross, how can we not be transformed to ever love Him, to lay our lives down? How can we stand before the cross and not be humbled ourselves? How could we ever assert our rights and privileges? Before the cross. I love the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How can we, how can we live for self-interest in light of the cross? How can we put ourselves first in light of the Lord of glory dying a shameful death for our sake. This love, this humility, it's the most amazing thing in all of history. There is no drama. There is no story. There is no history. There is no reality greater than this in Philippians chapter 2. There's no greater drama and, and if it just finished there, it would be amazing. The Lord of glory, the infinitely glorious one, lowers himself as low as possible, dying a death on the cross, a shameful death, bearing the wrath, the holy justice of God for our sin, being accursed by God for our sake. There's nothing greater than that, but the, but the verses continue. We have verses 9 through 11. Because God could not and would not stand by after such action and do nothing. 
He was compelled. He was compelled by the righteousness of his son, by his life, by his obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, to raise him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And therefore it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the other side of the roller coaster. It goes back up to the top. It goes back up to glory. The Father sees what the Son has done. And I, I just can't wait to be in his presence and just understand how delighted he is and what the son did. Just to say, I, I don't know how it works with God, I, but I, he has feelings. Just say, how did it feel? What was it like to watch your son die? And what was it like to raise him on that third day? How did it feel as God? Maybe we'll have to ask the angels first, and they'll just take up plenty of our time. I can't imagine... The Father's joy. The Father's... The Father's life and energy just in who He is over His Son. He exalted His Son because of His obedience, because of His death. And He determined that this victory was the ultimate victory that, that propelled Jesus to be the name above every name, that to be the king over all creation, so that at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, and all of creation, so it says in, it says in the heavens, in the earth, and under the earth, it means every part of creation. It means the, the angels and, 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 and the demons. It means mankind and all of creation will bow their knees and confess with their tongues that he is Lord. He is Lord. And it is your invitation from God this morning to gladly do that, to, in light of the gospel, gladly confess with your mouth to bend your knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who's done it. He is the one who's victorious. He is the right ruler of all things. And the work's not done, actually. Because he's reigning right now, he rose and he's reigning. And he's reigning for this purpose, to finish the work. To finish the work the Father gave him to do. And when it's done... He will, he will conclude, and he will bring the final resolution of all things. There will be redemption of creation, redemption of his people. There will be punishment of his enemies. There will be no more opportunity at that point to say, you're my Lord, and I'm glad for it. There will only be reluctant, obvious acknowledgement that he is Lord. The bowing of the knee, every knee will bow. Some will bow gladly. Some will bow with regret. You can make a difference today if you are not at that place yet to simply say, forgive me. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. And be one of those that gladly 
On that day, do it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The Father has exalted the Son for his, for his amazing humiliation, his death, his sacrifice, his victory. And that victory is our victory. That victory is made ours in Christ. When we come to him in faith, his death is our death. We die with him to our sin and our old way of life. We rise again with him to new life. He is in us, and he gives us power to be like him. That is our destiny, our sure destiny, to be like him in his resurrection. It is an experience for us even now, even though we have we have weak bodies, even though we have sin hanging on to us, we are raised from the dead with him. So his victory is ours. And, and it doesn't make sense to live a life of selfish pursuit like the old man. When you are new creatures in him, don't waste your life living for selfish interests. This passage calls us to this new life. It calls us to live in the exaltation of Christ and to die, though, as well, to self. That's, that's, the, that's the context here, right? It's, Paul's talking about how to live unselfishly. And it's certainly appropriate for us to glory in the gospel, to glory in Jesus. But, but there's an end point here that Paul has in, in this passage. It's, folks, thus Live your own lives in the gospel. Don't waste your life trying to be first. Follow the Lord in dying to self, knowing that he has died for you. Your life is hidden with him. It's secure. He loves you. There's nothing better than to be known by him, to be loved by him, and to serve him. You cannot find a better interest than that one. So stop the interest in the other things and learn the life of death to self and life in Christ. Learn to give up your life for the good of others. There's an implication here as well I believe is appropriate. His victory is our victory. And if we come to him, his life is ours. We are forgiven. We're made one with him. And that is our sure victory. And there'll be nothing better than to be in his presence and to enjoy him forever and to be with his people, to be finally and fully free from all sin. But there's an implication in this passage as well that we're called to live after this pattern of death and life. And there's an aspect of it where Jesus was rewarded for his obedience to the point of death. And for us as believers, there's a reward. Now, there's the ultimate reward secured in Jesus every believer has. But your experience of that reward will vary somehow. I don't know how it all works according to how you lived here. So what you do now does count. It does influence your eventual experience of that reward. There is a reward for the life poured out for others. In heaven, the celebrities will not be the big names in preaching the big names in Christendom, necessarily. The celebrities in, in heaven will be those that were servants of all. The, the unknown ones who, without a desire to, to put their name forward, prayed and interceded faithfully, served in their gifts, were stretched beyond their comfort zone into weakness, doing things they never thought they could do, but stepping out because they knew that by serving, by, by taking that, that position in children's ministry that you never felt competent for, you knew you would be serving others and it wasn't about you. 
who, who put, their, put their spouse first, who, who knew that there were things that should be right in this marriage, that he should love me. He should care about me. And this is something I want. I'm not going to give up on that, but I'm not going to orient myself around that. I'm going to come as a servant to love and respect first, trusting God. For the child and a family saying, I'm not going to assert my rights to be treated as an adult. It's not about that. I want to come and, and learn to be I want to learn to honor my father and my mother, to listen to them and to grow in them and then to become a fully formed adult. It's not about my rights. Those are the heroes in heaven, the ones who humbled themselves and served. Jesus says in Mark 10, but whoever would be great among you must be your slave, your servant. Slave is the word. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And they're talking in that context, who will be the big shots in heaven? Jesus says, these will be the big shots, those who are servants, those who are the slave of all. So there is an invitation in Philippians 2 to, to gladly seek our heavenly reward like the reward that Jesus did. It ultimately is in Jesus, but it is enhanced as well as we live after the pattern of Jesus. The band could come up as we close. This section of Scripture, verses 1 through 11, are, is a powerful, powerful set of truths that propel us into living a life of unselfishness. I, I can think of no more powerful motives than the blessings of the gospel and the pattern of the gospel to compel us to live unselfishly. So let's not waste Perhaps a fresh realization of these things this morning. Let's take what we're hearing and aim it at something. So in just a minute, before we sing, I want to take a minute. I want you to just think about one relationship. Only one. You don't need to be thinking about all the relationships that you need to live in this, and certainly not all the relationships where others need to live in this for your benefit. But one relationship, one situation... One family member, a spouse, parent, sibling, maybe one neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a church member. Take a moment and first ask the Lord to forgive you for not living in the power and pattern of the gospel in that relationship. And then secondly, ask him to help you. Then Maybe share that with someone else you can trust. Here's the person. Can you just pray? And then after that, believe me, God will give you opportunity to die and to live in Jesus, to serve that person. And as you do that in the power of the gospel, there will be reward. Let's take a minute to do that, and then we'll close in song.